0: Happy New Year. So, um, we're on to Ephesians. Um, Ephesians, I'm discovering, is, uh, it's like an ocean. (laughs) You kind of um, go for a paddle, and then you realise, well, I've just had a paddle in the ocean. (laughs) You know, there is so much more to be had from it. And my sense is that's going to be our experience as we kind of dip our toe in, so to speak, which is today, um, and then get an appetite and develop the appetite and kind of do, as I prayed, a deep dive into this amazing um, epistle that we have. It is so full that when you look up Ephesians and try and, uh, if you Google Ephesians and ask for a summary, you get a hundred different summaries if you uh, even do something as simple as Google what's the keyword in Ephesians, you get 20 different keywords. So I kind of defaulted to my own and it, it remains to be seen whether these they stick with us. Um, my own being the riches of God's grace. That for me seems to be how one of the many summaries that we could um, entitle the book of Ephesians with. Um, we've got something like three months' worth um, from Ephesians, so it really is a deep dive, and um, I would just encourage us to um, develop a real appetite for the book. What I'd like to do today is um, give you a sense of the place, um, give you a sense of the Church of God in Ephesus, um, give you some context as to... What had happened in Paul's life in association with the Church of God in Ephesus, um, and that of course prompted the letter. Um, I want to try and do that before quarter past because I then like to read Ephesians. I've said in the past that um, reading these letters in one sitting. uh, It has a profound impact and David and I went to Scotland on uh, New Year's Day and on the way back um, I was anticipating having not done a lot of preparation for this so I said can you read Ephesians to me Um, and actually it's really quite special to read the book in 15 minutes and then try and organise perhaps the structure that is appropriate for our study. So I'm going to read it, um, which takes about 15 minutes, do that at the end, um, and I'd encourage you to do it yourself, uh, multiple times, because there is so much in it. So, um, a little bit of context. Uh, Ephesians, the Ephesus I should say, and we can see it uh, here, where the arrow is, this is modern day Ephesus. I'm very aware that there's probably a few people in the audience in the audience or congregation, what are you? I don't know. Um, who actually been to Ephesus? I haven't been. I'd love to go. Um, and it seems like it's a, a pretty um, key holiday resort if you're on cruises and things. So keen for anyone to um, share their experience, kind of at some point on what Ephesus is really like. But you can see that it's on the um, the west side of what is present day Turkey. The history goes back seemingly to something like 190 BC, um, and that's when it first starts to get mentioned, because that's the point at which it became occupied by um, the Romans. It became uh, established as the capital of New-, New Asia, as it was called, so this is the whole kind of, of Turkey going further east. Um, something like around 1 to 4 AD, So this um, metropolis, let's call it that, is contemporary with Jesus' life. So it was kind of coming to um, become a famous centre of commerce around the time that Jesus was a child, and it grew phenomenally quickly. Uh, And within four or five years had something like 200... 25,000 population, which in those days is a pretty big um, capital. Part of the reason for the rapid population growth was a consequence of the desilting of uh, a a big river estuary. Now I don't know how the Romans did that. Um, We kind of struggle with that even today, don't we? But they seem to recognise that this was a gateway to um, what they were calling New Asia and if somehow they could clear out the estuary then it would become a fabulous um, dock for imports and exports etc so that was one of the the key things um, like any country that has um, that kind of geographical location sorry any city that has that kind of geographical location it uh, it became a magnet for all kinds of different people. Um, so you get a very broad range of nationalities. And even in the, um, in the Church of God, and we read about um, the Church of God in Ephesus, how it was established and who was there at the time in Acts chapters 18 to 20. So not a great deal of um, kind of practical things written apart from um, Paul's letter Uh, some other references and then also the letter to the church in Ephesus um, that we can read about in Revelation Um, but what you you get even from those couple of chapters in Acts is that there were people who were Persian Egyptian um, people from uh, North Africa I guess is is Egypt Um, they some of them were Jews even though they Came from those places. Um, you get a sense of the entrepreneurial thing, so a little bit like Philippi, that was a, a developing centre of commerce, and the entrepreneurs show up there because it's a business opportunity. Um, obviously, with Roman occupation, then there were Romans, and there were also Greeks. There's um, several major sites. Um, That demonstrate the multifaceted culture of of Ephesus. So it was known as the the center for the goddess uh, Artemis, also known by the Romans as the goddess Diana. So in a a classical period of Greek mythology, Artemis or Diana was often described as the daughter of Zeus and Leto. The twin sister of Apollo. She was a Hellenic goddess of the hunt, wild animals, um, childbirth, virginity, and pro- protector of young girls, both bringing and relieving disease in women. This was um, the goddess Diana or Artemis. And this is a, an artist's impression of the temple. Of Artemis, which is really the basis of the city of Ephesus being built. Um, there's also evidence of something called a library of Celsus. So this would have been, Ephesus would have been Asia's answer to Greece's Athens. So very much a university town. Um, we also will see references to something called the lecture hall of Tyrannus, which is a A centre for intellectual debate um, amongst amongst the academics at the time. There's also many what I would call Romanesque type structures um, and we can see here an amphitheatre, very similar to what you would find in Rome and that is very much the Roman influence in terms of um, creating public spectacles which might be Um, sporting challenges, chariot races, um, as well as um, entertainment uh, by putting prisoners up against each other, fighting to the death and also um, fighting uh, animals, what's the word I'm looking for, Um, gladiator type um, people, uh, prisoners. Um, (coughs) Ephesus was a city that was subject to several catastrophic earthquakes, so it had uh, a fairly limited history, I think it lasted probably around a thousand years Um, and then the emergence of other cities which were perhaps safer located um, and had equal benefit from the coastal location they seemed to take over from Ephesus, so around 1060 1060 Um, AD Ephesus seems to lose its um, kind of focus (coughs) what about the the church of God in Ephesus and as I say what I'm trying to do here is I'll talk about the church and then I'll I'll talk about the um, interaction that Paul who wrote the letter to the Ephesians had with it directly so again there's some variation in these dates but Let's go to the, uh, to the map again. The consensus is it was probably planted around AD 53. So that would make it 20 years after Pentecost or thereabouts. So um, the churches of God elsewhere um, were pretty established. Um, and becoming, although um, obviously publicity was somewhat limited, but becoming more well-known um with some of the pioneering work done by priscilla and aquila so if you read acts 18 we won't have the time to do that one of the things you'll see is that uh, a couple of the pioneers um that were involved in the establishment of the church were this husband and wife couple priscilla and aquila we also read about apollos showing up for the first time there um the assembly would have had a mixture of Romans, Greeks, and Jews. Um, Apollos was uh, Egyptian origin, and Priscilla, uh, it seems, like he came from the north of Turkey, maybe on the on the coast of the the Black Sea there, which is bordering uh, present day Iran or then Persia. Um, so you can see that there was a, a multi, um, a variety of culture there. A very strong culture of idolatry with ancient Greek influence. Um, that's brought with it a whole range of industry. Um, and that would have been the entrepreneurial types, setting up factories to make things like idols. I know it sounds a bit cheesy, but that is what they did. Um, and they would sell idols to the uh, rank and file. And that, of course, created all kinds of uh, employment. And... Um, so idolatry was very much embedded in the Ephesian society, whether you believed it or not, it was kind of part of, um, of the economy at the time. Um, like Philippi, the assembly would have had a wide range of, shall we say, classes. You'd have wealthy people who were the entrepreneurs. I would say that Priscilla and Aquila would probably fall into that category. Uh, as we'll see, they um, spent some time in Rome and were um, sent, ex- ex- excommunicated if I can put it that way, from Rome because uh, they were Jews. Um, and they ended up in Corinth and they were tent makers and they did employ Paul at some point, who was a professional tent maker and it seems that they came to Ephesus uh, perhaps on a, a bit of a business mission and they ended up staying there and running their business. So you've got the likes of Priscilla and Aquila who were presumably quite wealthy people and they would have been employers. So there were people in the, assemb- in the assembly in Ephesus who were both, they're described as slaves but let's call them employees as well as uh, employers. And then there's all of the infrastructure we were thinking about Philippi having people who worked in the prison service and, and that kind of thing, and I would imagine that there's all classes of people in this very upwardly mobile um, metropolis, and therefore the assembly that was there too. I would say that there was also a broad range of, um, of education amongst the people, so there was those who perhaps had come through the universities. Uh, around that time and were very well read Um, there were some Jews who were very well read very senior position who converted from Judaism to Christianity and I can also imagine there would be illiterate people there as well at um, the other end of the scale the assembly enjoyed a three year visit from the Apostle Paul that was probably around 54 to 57 AD Um, and during that time There was um, all kinds of miracles going on. It seemed as though that one of the reasons or one of the ways in which God worked in Ephesus through Paul was through um, very extraordinary miracles that he would do. Um, We read of uh, uh, the public burning of some sorcery scrolls. This was a consequence of people who were uh, studying that kind of thing Convicted by the gospel, believing it, joining the church. And there's a record of the public burning of their scrolls. And I did a quick calculation. Uh, in today's money, it's about £3 million worth of literature. Um, that's a huge thing for those people to have um, done. It speaks to their commitment to Christianity and the downright hatred to the sorcery from which they had been um, converted. The, the church became known as the way, that's um, something, a kind of phrase that seemed to be associated with it. Uh, such was the level of the conversion of um, local people uh, in the local culture to Christianity that it did begin to impact the economy, imagine that. Um, because they began to notice that not many, not as many idols were being sold anymore, as people converted from idolatry to Christianity, and that um, resulted in a riot in Ephesus, um, and um, the the riot was actually um, came under control by um, a statement that was made by the town clerk. You get the impression that the town clerk was, I guess he was a bit like the Lord Murr, a uh, very senior ranking politician. You get the impression that he wasn't um, convicted by the truth of Christianity, so he wasn't in the church. But he had a very good relationship with Paul, and he was able to quell those riots. It's an interesting chapter to read in Acts chapter 19. So I would say that the people in the church, um, as well as attracting um, persecution and ridicule particularly from the Jews actually, um, they also were very well respected even by people who didn't necessarily uh, believe what what was being taught was true. You also get the sense that it was a, a bit of a, a watershed in Paul's teaching. You get um, a very clear pattern in Paul's travels that he would start in the synagogue, start to debate who is the Messiah and then preach the arrival of the Lord Jesus, and that would be a hook that um, brought Jews into the church. And you get the sense in Ephesus that that he started that (coughs) method, which was uh, well-practiced, and failed. So as a consequence, he moved from um, preaching in the synagogues and went to this lecture hall of Tyrannus, where the Greeks were debating, and that seemed to be the focus of his... Uh, preaching, and he stayed doing that for two years. Um, Another dimension to the church, and this is speculation, but thinking of who was in the church, tradition would have it that the Apostle John took Mary, the mother of the Lord, to live in Ephesus, which is where Mary eventually died. And maybe those of you who have been to Ephesus have Um, been on the tour and seen Mary's house. Um, So it does seem uh, quite a credible story um, that Mary would have spent her her last days there. I kind of let my imagination go a little bit and was thinking, imagine what it would be if you had the Apostle John and Mary, the mother of the Lord, in your assembly Um, and the insight that they would give to those private, private um, experiences of the Lord Jesus we should also say that one of the that Ephesus was one of the last remaining churches of God and we can read about that in Revelation chapter 2 they had their own letter from the Lord that was one of those seven uh, letters to the seven churches in Asia um, they were applauded for their hard work their faithfulness to the truth so not tolerating um, false teaching But they were rebuked for having abandoned their first love. So we have this um, picture of the people in the assembly, pretty much a happening place, a wide range of nationalities, of education, of culture, of standards of living, and in God's grace, they were all brought together um, with one common bond, united in service. And it's with that background that Paul writes his letter. But let's just uh, think about Paul's own interaction just for a few minutes. We said this in our discussion around Philippians. So um, after Paul's conversion, he went to Damascus for three years. We get that from um, his letter in, to the Galatians. He then spent about 10 years in Antioch and then 15 years traveling, up to five of those years in prison. In Rome and it, he was in prison in Rome in two sessions. The first was um, kind of house arrest so he would have lived at home but under God um, and then there was a, a period of travel and then he returned to Rome finally when he was martyred. So Paul Ver- first visited Ephesus towards the end of his second missionary journey which started about AD 51 and lasted for two years So picking up from Philippi, Ephesus came after Philippi and between them, so we can read about Philippi in Acts 16, the sequence was establishing the church in Thessalonica, then in Berea, there's a a long um, session or description of what went on in Athens, which as you can see it's all kind of part of that um, Asia uh, location, not clear whether there was a church established in Athens then from Athens to Corinth and uh, it was from Corinth that Paul went to Ephesus Um, now during that two years of his second journey 18 months of it were spent in Corinth so it was really a matter of weeks around these other churches and um, when he came to Ephesus for the first time you get the impression it was just a few days he left Corinth with um, Priscilla and Aquila Um, probably around AD 53 Um, and again my sense is that they were a bit nomadic Priscilla and Aquila because they'd been kicked out of Rome for their um, beliefs and had been spending time in um, assemblies um, particularly Corinth and now they were travelling to Ephesus perhaps to see if there was business opportunities there for them bearing in mind they had a, a tent making business You get the impression that Paul left Ephesus and he went back to his uh, headquarters, which is Antioch in Syria, so he was sailing back and it was probably only a few days, Um, and he doesn't go back to Ephesus for another year, Um, and you have a strong sense that he goes back to Ephesus by which time the church had been established. Now if you look at the commentaries, it would suggest that Paul um, established the church in Ephesus, but I struggle with that a little bit because you get the sense he was only there for a couple of days. Um, And I would think that it was the work of Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos that really put Ephesus on the map in terms of the Church of God. Apollos shows up for the first time. He was from Alexandria in in Egypt, in North Africa, Um, but a very faithful man, but had limited exposure to God's truth. So Priscilla and Aquila put him right in terms of the apostles' teaching, and then Apollos was sent off to Corinth, Um, actually his request, led by the Spirit, was I'd like to go and help the folks in Corinth, and he got the blessing of the elders in the church in Ephesus. So Paul returns a year later, my view would be when the church is a year old, um, and he's going back to his friends uh, Priscilla and Aquila, um, and he's really captivated by the place. He spends three years, which is one of the longest times he ever spent anywhere, and it's right up Paul street because you've got great opportunity to debate with the Jews in the synagogues you've got great opportunity to debate with the Romans and the Greeks in the uh, um, lecture halls and he had uh, a huge impact Um, he leaves around AD 57 uh, with his ultimate destination being to go back to Jerusalem Um, but he decides to go back via Corinth Um, so he kind of goes west to go east his last encounter with the overseers in the church in Ephesus was um, in a place called Miletus here so having spent some time um, back in um, Corinth and around here sorry Corinth isn't on that map is it it's around here somewhere He, um, he goes back to Troas he spends some time in Troas where there is a church and then his objective is to uh, go back to Jerusalem, and actually he stops at Miletus, which is um, a coastal town, and uh, sends work word ahead that he would like to talk to the overseers from Ephesus. So they come down to Miletus, and they have a time of a time together with Paul, a very emotional time. You read about it in Acts chapter 20, which, um, in which uh, Paul delivers several warnings. Uh, about things they should be looking out for and concludes with a prayer time on the beach at my light is quite a, a compelling um, passage to read, an occasion for Paul and, uh, and those people in Ephesus. So that's Paul's exposure to Ephesus. He has a very special connection with the overseers, particularly the. What I'd like to do now, and I'm running a little bit late, so I apologise for that, but I do think it's it's worth reading the book together, the letter together, And um, then we'll come together next week and look at a structure that we will follow in our study. So Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marking him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our our inheritance until the day of redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every life that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, And of the ruler of the kingdom of the earth, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us through Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one. And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, peace to those who are near, for through him. We both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, and I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God, God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel in the Gentiles are uh, heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus? I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power, although I am less than the least of all. God's